according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, one more time in uh, Matthew 19. Uh, We will spend part of our time in Matthew and part of our time in Mark. If you were here last week, then uh, I spent the final five minutes just rushing through to uh, wrap up the last couple of points and details, because I figured, well, that's not enough for a whole other session, and we wrap it up and move on. And and then I got home and realized that we weren't even close. We have uh, another point of study we want to break down, so didn't have to quite rush through the way we did. All right, Matthew 19. Hopefully everyone got the news on uh, uh, the anticipated move. We're down to four remaining Sundays on Woodrow Avenue. And uh, July 18th will be our final Sunday on Woodrow. And then July 25th will be our first Sunday um, on Cross Park Drive. It's not yet clear what we're going to do on Wednesday the 21st. I suspect we won't have class that morning. I suspect the chairs will be either being moved or halfway moved or somewhere in, in a bit of a, of a flux. So we'll take a week off, I uh, expect, on that uh, Wednesday the 21st. In the evening, I don't know what we'll do there either. We may just sit around on some boxes over there in the new auditorium and, and you know, pull up a section of floor and, and have a, a informal prayer time and, and uh, a devotional of some sort. So, yeah, that's all right. We expect a little bit of transition and chaos in the process of that. But uh, stay tuned for uh, July 25th. And also, it's going to be a big family event. So invite grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles. Uh, the long uh, overdue uh, infant dedication and other things we haven't done, uh, we're going to try to incorporate much of that into our celebration of the uh, of the new facility. So uh, stay tuned for announcements on that. All right, Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. We're dealing with the rich young ruler and the response. Uh, the disciples were pretty shocked when uh, Christ told them that uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's what we want to be back, right back to in our study today. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to allow each one of us to set aside distractions, quiet our hearts, and to humble ourselves under authority, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we come before you once again today thankful for your truth and recognizing, Father, that sometimes maybe we just take this for granted. And, uh, man, Father, we should not. (laughs) Who are we? Who are we that we should be brought into your presence, that you might uh, unveil your thinking and reveal your purpose? We're not entitled to any of that. And yet, Father, you're delighted to uh, reveal yourself, and it pleases you to disclose the things of your glory, and to do so, Father, in, uh, in powerful ways. And we thank you that our fellowship is with you and with your Son. We thank you that the Holy Spirit indwells us to make these things real, to guide us into all things, even the deep things of God. So, Father, uh, just work in us today to recognize that this is your holy truth, that, uh, Father, we, are, um, we need it on a day-by-day basis for every decision, for every struggle, for every aspect of conflict. Father, equip us today to glorify your Son. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All righty. 
Um, let's just pick up where we are. Uh, remember, we were dealing with the rich young ruler, and he comes and he's got a, a legalistic approach. What must I do? Uh, what can I do? Uh, allow me to boast about all the great things I've been doing. And uh, it's not a humble question like the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? It's a boastful question by a man that's already think, uh, that thinks he's already stacked the deck. He thinks that there's nothing Jesus is going to tell him that he won't be able to say, Oh, I've done that. I've done that. I've got my bases covered. I'm just awesome. All right. Until Jesus says, Give away all your money. All right. And now the man is crushed. Uh, because that was one, you know, it's a, an uncovered base. He, he didn't have, he wasn't planning on that one. All right. It's not a part of the written law. It's not a part of the Old Testament. It's not anything this legalist could have anticipated. You know, if you're, if you're going to play the legalism game, that's all great until someone changes the rules, and then you either have to, uh, you know, take your ball and go home, or you got to adjust what you're doing and, and play by the new legalism game, as far as that goes. Anyway, we, we've spent a couple weeks now dealing with this and how Christ approached him lawfully. And the law is good if one uses it lawfully, we understand. We can use law to condemn, and that's what law is designed to do, and law condemns very well. And so if uh, you're dealing with a legalist or dealing with somebody approaching without a grace framework, a uh, law will, will do what it does every time. It will condemn, and no one's going to measure up. So Christ uh, responds legalistically rather than gr in grace, and uh, and that really is the thrust of this message. Then what happens is um, the disciples get a little shocked, and the Lord uses this to try to teach them. And so here's uh, where we get to his explanation on this. Jesus said to his disciples, this is verse 23, I'm in Matthew 19, verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So there's really two statements there. First of all, it's hard for a rich man. And, and they're going to start to object over that. Even though they themselves are saved by grace through faith, they themselves ought to have a grace understanding of what it is Christ is telling this guy. Yet they don't. They lose their own grace perspective in, uh, in disbelief over some of the things they're hearing here. Uh, so statement number one is verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 23. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to recognize that. And, and that's illust it's illustrative rather than exhaustive. And I'll give you that point again, and we'll highlight that as well. Um, and then the second where he builds on that, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If you're going to insist on it, if you don't accept the truth of verse 23, then let's carry it to an absurd extreme in verse 24. Now what are you going to do with it? <laughs> All right. And the point being, if the disciples would have been able to accept what he was telling them in verse 23, he wouldn't have to go to the absurd example of squeezing a camel through a, a, a needle eye in verse 24. All right. And there again, I f I'm finding patterns and communication methods that may actually stick. that might leave an impression in somebody's mind. And uh, uh, if you want to think of this as... Well, carry it to an extreme then. Carry it to an absurd degree then. If, if you're not going to accept the truth here, okay? It's not the only time Christ did this either, by the way. Remember in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, the bread of heaven passage where he talks about eating my flesh and oh, they went bonkers. So then he, what does he do? All right. How about eat my flesh and drink my blood? Okay. He just carried it even further. And, and he's taking them into a place where they're going to have to either confront 
the reality of the truth or just simply walk away from it. And um, I find it to be an effective and quite interesting communication uh, technique. All right, well, in the outline, if you've been following along, we, we got to point seven, then the specifics of this episode <clears throat> should be viewed as illustrative rather than exhaustive. The uh, idea of riches is an illustration because it's particular to this one guy and his biggest hang-up. Okay? But it should not be limited to simply that. Okay? It just so happens uh, when you understand the typology of this one illustration, the rich young ruler serves as a type of every human being who is making a human effort attempt to earn glory. All right, so he, he this is just one guy who is making a human effort attempt to earn glory. And how many more are there like him? Okay, there's no shortage. <laughs> the world is full of people making human effort attempts to earn glory. Sadly, a lot of them should know better because they're saved by grace through faith. And then in the outworking of their faith, once they are saved, they get plugged into a legalism routine. And once again, they're back to trying to trying to impress God with all the great things they can do. So any human being making a human effort attempt to either earn glory, either salvation glory or edification glory, either way, it's misguided. And so here's an example. Now, in this particular example... This particular example had a particular weakness, and it was wealth. All right, and that's what was particularly highlighted in this story. And so when he makes the point, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's true, and that's specific, particular to this one guy. But don't limit the principle to just simply rich people. There are other components of humanity that can be sources of pride that can become the basis for confidence and maybe it's not wealth maybe it's uh wisdom maybe it's intelligence maybe it's uh whatever anything that a person is banking on or are confident in that oh yeah i'm 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 doing great because of such and such okay that's the that's the component. Maybe it's beauty. Maybe it's a, a woman who's just so absolutely uh, impressed with how attractive she is. Say, well, what is the artificial source of your own self-worth? You know, what do you use to convince yourself that you're a good person? It could be any number of things. So we have a particular example here with a particular weakness that was particularly highlighted in this story. But understand that there are various other such human effort approaches. And they will have various other weaknesses. All right? Under, just understand that. That it doesn't matter. Maybe, and, and, and you can't uh, get full of yourself and be, you know, happy saying, well, I don't have a greed problem. I don't have a money problem. I'm, this chapter doesn't mean anything to me. Okay, well, then what is your problem? <laughs> Go ahead and just substitute your hang-up. Plug it in there for the rich guy. Plug it in there with your hang-up and say, there you go. And say, it's hard for... Uh, whatever, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Just plug in your downfall, say, to where you recognize that human effort will never get you or anybody else there. So various other such human effort approaches have various other weaknesses. Jesus indicates the broadened scope when he expands from the wealthy to everyone. And that's a transition we don't see in Matthew, but it's over in Mark chapter 10. If you missed that last week, let me just spotlight it one more time. Mark chapter 10, where in verse 23 we read, 
uh, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. But then in verse 24, um, as the disciples were amazed at his words, and we're going to go into that amazement today. But Jesus answered again and said, children, how hard it is. Not just for the wealthy, for everyone, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And so he broadens the scope. It's not just wealth. Okay. Wealthy people, that might be a hang up that will hinder their uh, reception of the gospel. But uh, healthy people that are full of their own physical fitness and full of their own, uh, you know, vitality and life and, and how great things are going. All right. That can be an obstacle. As I said, uh, physical beauty, attractiveness, um, intelligence, college degrees, educational achievements, business success. There could be any number of things that will be obstacles. And so let's uh, let's not limit our understanding on this passage. Uh, How hard it is for a rich man, how hard it is for a smart man, how hard it is for uh, an attractive person, how hard, whatever it is. Okay. That might be the downfall of a human effort approach, which is simply a reflection of pride. All right. And then take the camel and needle illustration and apply it to every human effort approach to righteousness. And don't be all wrapped up over the animal either. This, this parable or this proverb finds other expressions. And in the Babylonian uh, Talmud, it was an elephant rather than a camel. Okay, but the same concept, big animal, little hole. They don't, you can't squeeze the thing through there. All right. So take that illustration and apply it to every human effort approach to, uh, to righteousness. And I'm trying to keep it generic as well, not just salvation righteousness. All right. How about the, the justification after you're saved? What about the experiential justification of your, your walk in holiness, your sanctification walk? Uh, trying to please God in the Christian way of life. Is that going to be a human effort approach based on merit, based on what you've earned and deserved? Or once again, are we going to see that it's by grace through faith? As you receive Christ, so also walk in Him. You want to be pleasing to God? It's not going to be human effort. It's going to be by grace through faith. It's going to be by humbly uh, walking with your God. All right. Point eight, then salvation is impossible for human beings, but God is not restrained by human impossibilities. And this is where we uh, rushed at the end of our session a week ago and uh, really didn't need to because of the subpoints A, B and C and then point nine and their subpoints and things like that. So we weren't really close uh, to wrapping this up. Matthew 19. Uh, now let's look at verses 25 and 26. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. They were astonished. Okay? Does, does your pastor ever say anything that just your jaw drops and you're like, I can't believe he said that? All right? <laughs> um, well, probably. Okay? Because Jesus isn't your pastor. All right? But if he says something that you know is just outrageous, unbiblical, cannot be true, well, why is he saying it? Now, here's. Christ teaching his disciples and they are flabbergasted. And in their mind, he's nuts. Who can get saved? What are you talking about? No one can get saved under those conditions. So when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished, extremely astonished. And they said, then who can be saved? 
How is anyone going to get saved? All right, so what are we dealing with here? Is, is, is Jesus wrong? Or are they not following where he's going or what he's teaching with respect to human effort on the one hand and grace on the other? That's, I think clearly this is uh, what happens. When you and I lose our objectivity, even when we know something is true, we still allow our thought process to, to go elsewhere. Right? The disciples, had they knew about salvation by grace through faith. Absolutely. They understood that, you know, but see, here's the thing. When you think about the, the um, we have the same thing today. All right. You and I know factually, doctrinally, we got the doctrine and residency. We got the notebooks. We got it. We, got, we know <laughs> that prosperity theology is heretical. We know it. But are there moments when in our attitude we start to drift into um, thoughts regarding uh, God's blessings in financial realms? Do we start to allow ourselves to associate uh, financial blessings with spiritual blessings, even though we know the doctrine says that's not right? Is there still, are there moments where our attitude starts to drift into such things? Where our attitude starts to see um, particular struggles and, and we might not verbalize it, but we start thinking, oh, well, they're, God's disciplining them. Or God's testing them. Or God's, well, who's to say? Maybe God's protecting them. <laughs> right? You know. So... This is, I think this is, we're seeing what the exposure here of the disciples and their attitudes, and which is very Jewish, and that's their background, and that's their culture, in the idea that, well, what's wrong with this rich guy? Okay? I mean, yeah, I know he's a Pharisee, I know he's a ruler, I mean, but we kind of admire him. You know? Do you find yourself admiring folks, and then you have to stop and say, well, wait a minute, you know what? You know, uh, hmm, under divine viewpoint, there's really not a whole lot admirable there, is there? You know, I, I I come to I mean I like his uh, I like his acting I like his movies, uh, but oh you know what he's really rather godless. Why do I have an admiration? Or he's a wonderful athlete man he can belt out home runs left and right, but it, should I be? I got to be cautious. You know, if I can have an appreciation for athletic achievement, but still recognize that man he's he's a servant of the adversary. All right. And, and, and so the shock of this, I think, is interesting. All right. Salvation is impossible for human beings, but God is not restrained by human impossibilities. And the fact of the matter is that anytime somebody gets saved, it's a miracle. Can we be honest about that? It's a miracle. All of the human race ought to be just thrown into hell. But the fact that God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son and made provision for the grace application of righteousness, that's a miracle every time it happens. All right, so here's your contrasting points. I'll just put them up here side by side so you can see the adunatas and the dunatas. Uh, so point A then, with people, this thing is impossible. And you have the uh, adjective adunatas, A-D-U-N-A-T-O-S, which is the opposite of dunatas. Anytime you stick the alpha in front of a Greek adjective, you're negating it. It's like un in English, clear and unclear. 
friendly and unfriendly. Helpful, unhelpful. Okay, you're sticking un in front of something. You're reversing it. That's the alpha privative here in front of the dunatas. So, adunatas is number 102 in the Strong's index, and then dunatas is number 1415. And there are 16 uh, adunatas examples in the in the New Testament. There are 32 dunatas examples in the uh, New Testament. And the dunatas is related very clearly. It's a, it's a cognate with with dunamai, with dunamis, with power. All right. So if you have power to do something, you're able to do something. You, it is possible. It's within your ability. It's within your power. And if you have no power, if you're powerless, if you're impotent, if, you, if it's impossible, well, then there it is. Okay. And these are just the stark realities. But we want to understand that uh, uh, we're not limited by what's humanly possible and humanly impossible. The, the blessings we have to partake of the heavenly provision is that we are beyond the realm of human possibilities and human impossibilities. And so we've got several of my favorite impossible verses in the Bible that are found in the book of Hebrews. You know, do you have your own favorite impossible verses? Okay. Uh, mainly the ones I think of all the time are... Uh, Hebrews 10, 4 and Hebrews 11, 6. But there's uh, these other ones in Hebrews 6 that sometimes uh, disturb people. Um, Hebrews 6, 6 says, uh, with respect to apostasy, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again in repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. And that verse uh, stirs up a lot of the anti-eternal security crowd that thinks that it's testimony to their Arminian viewpoint, which of course it's not. Uh, but the fact is, it is a truth. It is impossible to get saved a second time. Right? <laughs> How many times can you get saved? Once and only once, because once you're saved, how long does that last? How long is eternal life? Okay, so of course it's impossible to get saved a second time. This isn't a passage that supports Arminianism. It's a passage that defends the uh, Calvinist approach to security. Then down to verse uh, 18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. There's a favorite impossibility verse. Say, it's impossible for God to lie. Omnipotence doesn't mean God can do everything. There are things that are impossible for God to do, and it's impossible for God to lie. And uh, chapter 10 and verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You want to see how impotent uh, Levitical priesthood is? The Old Testament, the law. The law was never designed to be the permanent eternal solution to human redemption. It was designed to show how condemned we are and the necessity for grace to do what law could not do. And so this is why uh, his sacrifice, once and for all, abides for all eternity. Then over to chapter 11 and verse 6. Uh, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. We'll have that concept coming back in our Corinthian series because we're dealing with the uh, ambition. Whether we're at home or absent, we are to have as our ambition to be pleasing to God. And so this is a principle that will tie in real well with our Corinthian series. All right, so uh, those are my favorite impossible verses. Maybe you got some other impossible verses that you like. That's fine. Uh, but with God, of course, all things are 
possible. All things are possible. And uh, Mark 9, 23, 14, 36, Romans 12, 18, all things are possible. Now, some folks, you know, there's there's some uh, little snipers and uh, Bible haters and God haters and skeptics and whatnot. And they, they would view this and say, well, well, what do you mean all things are possible? We just saw it is impossible for God to lie. And they try to they try to play games with words and talk about, well, you know, the Bible contradicts itself. Now, we don't have any issues with with what it's saying here. All things are possible. All things that humans would find to be impossible are well within the power of God to bring about, if it's, in fact, consistent with his purpose. All things. All things. You want to understand all things? Then let me tell you about all things. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Those all things. Okay. Let's, let's deal with Scripture. Let's deal with reality. Let's not get sucked into some kind of a pathetic juvenile can god make a rock so big he can't lift it kind of insanity all right you know because my god's smarter than your moronic little trap you think you just set for yourself (laughs) all right um when we find out that all things are possible for god we do notice um that often uh these truths are communicated in a context where i lost mark where did mark okay mark's after matthew I was looking before Matthew. All right, Mark 9:23. We're finding that these are truths that are taught in a in a um, situation where people are, are finding themselves rather uh, at a loss. Okay, Mark 9:23. And uh, here's these people, and they're uh, kind of hopeless. And uh, you know, there's this demoniac, and he's, he's going to get killed one of these days, and the demon's going to keep throwing him into the fire or throw him into the water. He's either going to burn or drown, and what are we going to do? If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. In verse 12, 22, okay, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, if you can, you know, if you can, what are you, smoking something? I mean, who do you, who do you think you're talking to here? If you can, well, he's rather offended by the thing. And do we not offend God when we come to Him with doubt in our prayers? My Father, you, you, you probably don't know that, that I have this need right now, and, and I'm not sure you really can uh, do anything about it anyway, but you know, if, if you think maybe you might provide, how insulting is that? The book of James says you're not going to get that prayer answered. You've got to ask in faith. Well, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And, and I love this. This is, And what happens here, when, when these passages are talking about God's power, God's ability, that he can do all things, it's coming in the, in the scope of the human being recognizing his limitations. So things that are impossibilities in the human experience are very much within God's ability. He has all power. All right, and of course, 1436, also in Mark. None of these ought to be shocking. You ought to to have a familiarity here. But here he is in the garden. He's in Gethsemane. And uh, he says, Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He doesn't doubt that he could do it. But then he says, not what I will, but what you will. Can the Father take away 
the need for the cross? Will the Father take away the need for the cross? The difference between what He can do and what He will do. And then finally, Romans twelve eighteen. So you got a little assortment of my favorite impossibility verses and my favorite possibility verses. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible. And understand, so far as it depends on you, you may come you may encounter some impossibilities. Is that your fault? All right, but if possible, so far as it depends on you, if there's irreconcilable differences, make sure that the irreconcilable part is on the other part, not yours. Because as far as it depends on you, you have the attitude of peace and love and reconciliation. Now, obviously, it's a two-party connection and you can't control what the other person's doing. But so far as it depends on you, all right. And uh, this this should be even with your your biggest enemy on planet Earth, who hates your guts, would love to see you dead, can't wait to do something on your grave. Great. Okay. Then uh, you're their enemy, but they're not your enemy. As far as it depends on you, understand that. So there's uh, another good possible verse. It may not be possible. If it's not, hey. Not your business. The Lord will deal with that. But your realm is to keep your attitude proper in the sight of the Lord. Now, point C. These principles should be obvious to any believer. But the disciples were struggling. The disciples were struggling. Point C. These principles should be obvious to any believer, but the disciples were struggling to comprehend the Lord's ministry to the rich young ruler. You know, he showed up to just brag about how awesome he was. The Lord uses this to not only send him away sorrowful, but to uh, focus the disciples on some blind spots. They were astonished, struck out of their senses in amazement. Ek pleso speaks of this. Pleso is a striking, an ek to strike out. You're just, you're knocked out of your mind, figuratively, metaphorically. Man, you've been so shocked that you were just speechless. You couldn't even, you had to process for a moment just to try to get uh, coherent conversation back online. <laughs> you know, some item of news or some uh, something out of the blue. And you're just struck out of your senses in amazement. And you have to reorient and, and kind of come back into a... a uh, a sense of awareness. It's a fairly common term. Thirteen uses in the New Testament. Well, we won't look at them. But um, ask yourself this, though. You say, oh, well, this would never happen to me. Really? Why not? <laughs> um, you know, did these, disciple, did these disciples have um, inferior teaching? They had the best teacher who ever walked the planet. And they have, and they still have blind spots and areas where they're just not catching on. We're told specifically there are things that, that don't sink in until after the resurrection, after the ascension. You know, Peter and John are standing in an empty tomb looking down at the cloth laying there, and all of a sudden, oh, 
All right, now I'm getting it. That's what's going on. And they had the best teacher that ever lived. So where does that leave? Uh, where does that leave believers in other churches, you know, or in churches today where, you know, uh, you have uh, uh, imperfect teachers with imperfect teaching methods with kind of goofy personality quirks and other things. Uh, are there going to be bumps here and in, in there? Are there going to be glitches? Are there going to be blind spots? Are there going to be those aha moments that you wonder, I should have got this six years ago? Of course. Of course. But what do we do in those in those events? We just praise God and thank Him that all we're doing is adding a little bit here, a little bit there, line upon line, precept upon precept. Um and trusting that in the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit, in the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit, the items that are gleaned, the items I'm feeding on, the items I'm going to live with, are the items that I need at this particular moment for these tasks, for these situations. I think the uh, the bulk of these, Matthew 7, 28, 13, 54, 19, 25, 22, 33, a bunch of those in Matthew. <clears throat> Mark one twenty two six two seven thirty seven ten twenty six eleven eighteen, actually more of them in Mark, Luke two forty eight. That, by the way, is the example where Mary and Joseph uh, realize that Jesus isn't in the caravan anywhere, and they they backtrack all the way to Jerusalem and find him on the third day, uh, and they are dumbfounded. They are shocked. They are out of their senses. They just can't believe. He's sitting there in Bible class with the, with the, the teachers and the, and the scri- and scribes and all that, and they're just struck out of their senses in amazement that, uh, that he's there. So that's Luke 2.48, Luke 4.32, Luke 9.43, and finally Acts 13.12. Those are the uh, 13 uses of ekplaso. So... Um, Anyway, I think this all ought to be a um, a uh, reminder and an encouragement that uh, if something just dawns on you or shocks you or slaps you in the face, then well, wait a minute, what's that? You know, well, rejoice, <laughs> uh, relax. It's uh, sometimes uh, those are the the best methods of uh, of uh, you know the the ton of bricks methodology of instruction. When it all comes crashing down on you like a ton of bricks, and then all of a sudden, oh, all right, that's what I'm supposed to be doing with this. All right, we'll leave the vocabulary study there. Point nine, Peter and the other apostles. Now, remember, they're still not, it's still not dawning on them yet. They're still in the bewilderment stage. Peter and the other apostles felt like they had literally performed what the rich young ruler could not do. Peter and the other apostles felt like they had literally performed what the rich young ruler could not do. It's it's really a sad episode. By the time it ends, and you wonder. I mean, not only did the rich young ruler go away sad, I think Jesus went away sad. I think uh, the disappointment and the discouragement over the attitude of these disciples must have been discouraging for the Lord. So let's look at the final verses here. And and Mark and Luke are largely parallel, but we're going to gain two things out of Matthew, and then we'll switch over to Mark for the rest of this hour. Um, 
Notice, uh, Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And, uh, you know, this, this only, the amazement was internal. Their question was, who can be saved, was hopeless. And now this question is entirely selfish. Um, clearly, they, they weren't following what the Lord was saying when he told the man to go give away all this stuff. Right? But now they're starting to think, well, we gave away a lot. <laughs> does that mean we've, we've made it? Does that, mean, does that mean we're good? What's, what's there for us? What have we earned up? What are we going to get? <laughs> and Jesus, you know, um, this is how I know all those romantic uh, Renaissance paintings of Jesus with the, the flowing long hair and all that. Those aren't accurate at all. Because I, I know the disciples had him pulling his hair out every single day. He'd just pull his hair out in frustration with Peter and these knuckleheads, right? Well, behold, we, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And I find this interesting. They felt that they had literally performed what the rich young ruler could not do. And Jesus said to them, now this is unique in Matthew. Verse 28 is not found in Mark and Luke. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's very patient with them. He's very patient with them. They've, they have left a lot. He's going to answer their question specifically. There is reward for the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he reveals that here. It also comes up in Luke 22 and in, in Revelation 21 and Acts 126. Uh, we well, got some concepts here. But to me, <laughs> you know, Jesus is so... Um, Remember, just a moment ago, we were talking about when he was indignant, and they said, if you can. He goes, if you can. And he tells them with God, all things are possible. Uh, here's another opportunity for them to, for Jesus to just totally become righteously indignant. When they said, you know, we left everything. Did you? What, what did you leave? You know what I left? You know what Jesus left? When he laid aside his privileges, when he humbled himself. You know what Jesus left? I mean, there's songs about, <laughs> you know, all the things we've left, all the sacrifices we've made. And Jesus says, you don't even know. You don't even know. All right. <clears throat> Hard to even think about sometimes. What did Jesus leave? We can't, if we give away everything, what is it? Nothing. It's just stuff he gave us by grace to start with. Stuff we didn't deserve in the first place. So giving it all up means what? But what did he give up? What did he lay aside? All right. <laughs> the apostles of the Lamb do have special reward. And it is allotted to them. Uh, it is promised for them sitting on 12 thrones, judging 12 tribes of Israel. 
The apostles of the Lamb, 7.8, the apostles of the Lamb have special reward. And that is very unique. Both under Israel's blessings in eternity and the church's blessings in eternity. We've done a lot of study on the judgment seat of Christ and rewards we can anticipate as church-age saints. And it's good. We, we should study that because that's our, that's our stewardship. That's our application. That's where we are. But the apostles of the Lamb, by the way, were already functioning in uh, service capacity prior to the church ever starting. And what happens to that treasure they laid up in heaven during that time before the church even started? Okay. Do they get anything for that? Is there anything? Is there any reward there? All right. We talk about in my father's house are many dwelling places and in eternity there are going to be rewards. Uh, you know, the Gentiles will have their rewards. Uh, Job will arise and receive his eternal estate. Uh, Noah, the, the Gentiles will have their eternal estate. Israel, of course, will <clears throat> in the resurrection have their eternal estate. And uh, we, we don't think about overlap between these. Uh, nevertheless, we've got to recognize that the apostles of the Lamb do qualify, and, and really any believer who crossed over from the dispensation of Israel into the dispensation of the church. But most specifically here, what's promised to these apostles of the Lamb, you will sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They have both blessings related to Israel and blessings related to the church. And this uh, verse is speaking of their role related to Israel. Twelve thrones judging twelve tribes. Now, they weren't they didn't represent all twelve tribes. I mean too many of them were brothers and they came from the same tribe as their brother, and uh and most of them were from Judah anyway, in terms of uh of that. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, James and John were of the tribe of Judah. Um we don't know about Peter and, and uh Andrew. We can guess with a name like Simon, he was probably from the tribe of Simeon, but we don't know. Uh, Luke 22.30, if you want another passage that supports this. These are eternal rewards that are promised to the disciples prior to Pentecost, prior to the church even starting. These are not church age rewards. It bugs me when sometimes pastors teach this as a church age reward. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. They are the followers, the acolytes. Akalutheo is the verb. The followers, those that traveled with Jesus, that walked with him, that talked with him, that learned from him, that, that helped him, that supported him. Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve apostles, twelve thrones, one per tribe. This is their privilege the apostles of the lamb seated with jesus christ and then of course simon simon behold satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat and uh other application there we'll we'll get to that in turn um revelation 21 14 this is where we have the title or the uh the recognition that apostles of the lamb are different than your generic off-the-shelf run-of-the-mill everyday ordinary church-age apostles all right revelation 21 14 <clears throat> and the wall of the city, this is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and it's got gates, and it's got uh, other things here, walls. But the um, 12 foundation stones of verse 14, 
And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Okay, that's a specific category of apostle. Paul was not an apostle of the Lamb. Barnabas was not an apostle of the Lamb. The four brothers of our Savior that became apostles after the resurrection, James and Jude and and, uh, those guys, were not apostles of the Lamb. Only the twelve. How many apostles of the Lamb are there? Twelve. Okay, twelve. And that's a specific number. It's designed to be that number. The twelve apostles of the Lamb are the ones that were apostles before there was a church. They were apostles before the resurrection. They were apostles before the death of Christ. And they are the apostles of the Lamb. Paul is not an apostle of the Lamb. Barnabas is not an apostle of the Lamb. James and Jude are not apostles of the Lamb. They're church-age apostles, but they're not apostles of the Lamb. And uh, Acts one twenty-six. I think, teaches us why it was vital that 12th slot had to be occupied. And this is Matthias taking Judas's place, not Paul taking Judas's place. And it's necessary that Peter stands up in the midst of the brethren 120 persons, all spirit-filled, spirit-indwelled. Brethren, Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. And this is his sermon. It's recorded in Scripture under inspiration. That uh, it's written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate. Let no one dwell in it. Let another man take his office. Let another man take his office. You know, I know we make jokes. We talk about it. People trying to apply this verse to... President Obama, you know, let another man take his office. Well, someday. But the prophecy was looking forward to the traitor, to the betrayer of Christ. And the necessity is that that office, that apostleship, must be occupied because these twelve have eternal destinies. So it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. These are the qualifications for an apostle of the Lamb. Not an apostle, a church-age apostle later on, like Paul and Barnabas, but for those to be an apostle of the Lamb, this is the, the criterion. There were two such that qualified, Joseph called Barsabbas and uh, Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these you two have chosen. This isn't just Peter coming up with a dumb idea. God sanctions this. He blesses this. He uses the methodology of the drawing of the lots to indicate his will. To uh, occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. There's a question for a Wednesday night. Where was Judas's place? And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias. The lot fell to Matthias. Notice the Holy Spirit never intervenes, never, the Lord never stops Peter and says, Peter, no, this is stupid, just make do with 11, you're fine, don't have to, none of that. This is sanctioned, this is divine guidance at work here. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias. He was added to the Hendeka, the 11, and they become the Dodeca, the 12. Added to the 11. What does that mean? And, and so throughout the rest of Acts, what do we have? We have the 12, the 12, the 12. 
And when we get to Revelation 21, we realize why they have to be the 12, because those are the names inscribed upon the foundation stones, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. All right. Back to Matthew then. Um, and you know what? Let's go ahead and go to Mark. Let's use Mark 10 for, the, for points B and C. Mark 10. Just because the, the parallel, but I, I think the um, conversation is more uh, fuller and more expressive in, uh, in Mark's record. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, point B then. Temporal life sacrifices have temporal and eternal recompense. Temporal life sacrifices have temporal and eternal recompense. Temporal life sacrifices have temporal and eternal recompense. Have you left something for Christ? Maybe. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I think we've, we've had less of that in our prosperous culture than our brethren elsewhere around the world. The pastor we're praying for right now in Pakistan was given 15 days to convert to Islam or be murdered. And uh, it's a big focus on our prayers. Is he going to get out of the country in time? Can he get his family out in time? He had tickets in hand, but his son got sick, and they wouldn't let him fly when he was sick. Now they don't know. All right. I think we also need to understand that the abandonment who has left, it's for the sake of Christ and for the gospel's sake. This comes down to the motivation for why you're leaving what you're leaving. And I think a lot of times there's sacrifices that aren't truly sacrifices. Not when the, the ultimate attitude is, is identified. It's not for the sake of Christ that something's given up. In many cases. Temporal and eternal recompense. Well, what's the temporal recompense? A hundred times as much. Woohoo! So this is where prosperity theology and other... Uh, False approaches, you know, that if you put 10 bucks in the offering plate, you know, what do you expect to come back? This is the the uh, magical uh, grace ATM machine thing of legalism where, hey, I'm going to give this and then, and you know, I'm going to, is this a genie? I'm going to rub a genie and claim a verse and you need a doctrinal orientation to what these passages are truly dealing with. And uh, what is it that you're forsaking you know, the people that are trying to get that hundredfold return on investment are not forsaking the ten bucks. They're investing it, <laughs> hoping to reap it back. They're not forsaking it. 
And, um, you know, Christ, when he said, I came to bring not peace, but a sword. And uh, what happens when, uh, you know, a relationship has to be broken off because of Christ. And, um, you know, we've got a lot of uh, spiritual orphans, as it were, in the sense that your natural family is, is very hostile to the things of the Lord, very hostile to truth. And uh, you got to realize, you know what, that's, that has to be broken off. But that's all right. Because how many brothers do you have now? How many sisters do you have now? How many mothers do you have now? See, i got all kinds of mothers. Many of them are here today. <laughs> all right, and sisters and brothers. Man, i got family all over the place. i got family mostly in this flock. i got family all over town because of other flocks where we got fellowship. And family across the state, family across the country, family all over the world. And it's just awesome. Man, you know how much family we've got? How many homes we've got? You know, Jesus had nowhere to lay his home, but how many homes did he really have? You know, where um, you got the opportunity. That's what we receive back. Or farms, or brothers, or sisters, or, or uh, any of these things. Remember, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So if, when, you, when you truly embrace that, Paul taught it in 1 Corinthians. We see it here in terms of what we've forsaken and what we receive and, uh, and everything, you know. I think, uh, you know, I would love to have a, uh, I would love to be able to play the piano. I'd love to have a wonderful singing voice. And I do. Not me, of course. <laughs> but when John plays or Christine plays or someone else is playing the piano or Jacob is singing or something else, man, that belongs to me. Right? Because all things belong to me. And I belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Somebody the other day was saying, uh, they, oh, it was a Facebook note saying, oh man, I wish I could take 12 hours just to sit and study the Bible all day long. You know? You do. You have that. You have that because God provided that for you in this lampstand, in this pastor, in, this, in, the, in the inner workings of, of these things. You see how that works? You have that. Just like I have, the, I have Jacob's singing voice or uh, John's piano fingers or uh, actually Christine has the piano finger. John's got these big meat hook things that just, I don't know how he plays the piano with these things. He just looks like a something, meat packer. But he still plays and he sings and just, it, it's, and those are my fingers. And that's my voice. And that's my blessing. I'm thankful for that. So you see how this works. Brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, and all this. What have we really left? What have we really lost? And, and when you understand the eternal perspective, have we, you know, with, with, uh, we say, oh, I lost my grandfather, I lost my father, I lost my... Well, did you really lose them, or are they in heaven waiting for you to get there? Okay. The only real loss comes, which is not your loss, it's their loss, as if they die without Christ. Then... You can say you lost them, but did you really lose them? Or did they lose you? Did they lose Christ? You want to think about it in those terms. Temporal life sacrifices have temporal and eternal recompense. Thirdly, the inversion of first and last is consistent with God's thoughts and ways. 
the inversion of first and last. It is oh so human to think that the older naturally has preeminence. The first should come first. And yet, how many times do we see the younger serves the older? How many times do we see that the last comes first? The inversion of first and last is consistent with God's thoughts and ways. You got to hear. You got, uh, of course, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Do you need to turn there? We only have three minutes left. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, what does it say? As the heavens are higher than the earth. You understand that? So are my thoughts higher than your thoughts, my ways. All right, I'll turn there. I'm going to misquote it if I don't. Isaiah 55. And you know, the, the idea of first can be temporal, it can be positional. You know, it came first in a sequence, or they were first in preeminence. Um, you know, who are, the, who are the believers that are going to have maximum reward at, G, at the judgment seat of Christ? I can't tell you because I never heard of them. I don't know who they are. The invisible heroes of the church age that were obscure, that were unknown yet well-known that function in secret and their father who sees in secret will repay them. Those that we know about, those that church history writes about, you know, Luther and Calvin and famous uh, preachers and Spurgeon, all these famous names, we think, oh, they did amazing things for God. Well, I think the more we know about them, under the pattern and principle here, who are the really, the magnified saints going to be? I think it's going to be Mrs. Spurgeon, Mrs. Luther, Mrs. Calvin. <laughs> Mrs. Theme. It's going to be the pastor's wives. It's going to be the pastor's mothers. It's going to be the faithful prayer warriors that prayed and wrestled and, and agonized. Never received any earthly acknowledgement. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So this inversion of first and last, let's keep things in perspective. Do you want to be first? Do you want to be first in all things? You know, a little kid that wants to run in the front of the line every time, no matter what. Hmm. Go to the back of the line and let the teacher move you to the front. You know, just humble yourself. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this time of study. Thank you for the disciples. And, and Father, I thank you that uh, our New Testament isn't, uh, wasn't written by a bunch of guys that uh, were trying to prove how awesome they were. Uh, but, Father, in our Bibles, we have the descriptions of disciples that, that were bamboozled and befuddled and that uh, thought too slow and spoke too fast and uh, just were always... Uh, I thank you for that, Father, that the Bible didn't uh, just gloss over their shortcomings or try to puff them up in unrealistic expectations. But, uh, Father, Scripture describes for us the reality of, of how we live and how we learn and how we grow. And, and yeah, we, we make mistakes along the way and we learn from those mistakes and we get up and your grace keeps us moving. And it's just a wonderful thing, Father, and I thank you for that. I thank you. Uh, <laughs> I thank you that I wasn't one of those guys and my mistakes aren't written in Scripture here for everyone to find out about but father just uh keep us growing keep us learning thank you father in christ's name we pray amen